0: Pop culture, traffic, David, episode forty-nine: The Waiting Place. Welcome to episode 49 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Last time around, I had Todd Liebenau from the Forgotten Film cast on to talk about Fast Time's Ridgemont High. I'm flying solo for this one, but in keeping with that episode, I'm staying in high school. I won't be covering a movie or a television show, which is what I tend to do when I tackle anything in the teen genre. Instead, I'll be covering a comic book. In fact, I'll be covering one of my favorite comic book series of the last 15 years, although it may not be one you're that familiar with. Originally published by Slave Labor Graphics in the late 1990s and early 2000s and written by Sean McKeever, it's The Waiting Place. I'll be giving you some background on the series as well as a full synopsis and review. The Waiting Place is set in the town of Northern Plains, a small town in the upper Midwest that is based on McKeever's own hometown of Eagle River, Wisconsin. It is a series that started its life as a self-published comic book back in 1997, as McKeever put together three issues of the series with artists Brendan and Brian Frame, before it was picked up by Slave Labor Graphics, who republished the three, as well as three more issues, then collected them in a book one trade back in 2001. Book 2 came out in 2002, with Book 3 following in 2003. It's interesting to note that as far as I know, only the stories contained in the Book 1 trade were ever published as original issues, and that when Books 2 and 3 were put together, SLG published them in a true, quote, graphic novel format, foregoing individual comics and sticking with just the trades. That's at least how I wound up seeing them, and buying them anyway. I'm pretty sure that I spotted the first issue in previews back in 1997. I thought it looked interesting, but I didn't order it because I was a broke college student at the time who was buying, well, four or five books? I really wasn't buying a lot in 1997 because of money, the money involved. Anyway, when the first trade came out in 2001, I was at a point in my life where I was venturing out in terms of my taste in comics. Moreover, I had the money to do so. So I ordered the trade, and I really enjoyed it. Plus, as you'll see, book one ends on a cliffhanger, so even if I didn't think it was so hot, I probably would have ordered book two just to see how it ended. Book two was even better. By the time 2003 rolled around, I got book three, and probably have read those three books more times than I can count. In 2009, IDW picked up the series and published an omnibus of sorts called The Definitive Edition, which collects everything from the three trades as well as a new epilogue that picks up the story seven years later. Much of the background I have in the series, by the way, is from what I could call from Wikipedia pages and the pages that Wikipedia sources, which is not much, I'm afraid. Many of the links were dead. They were simply repeating what the Wikipedia page said. Basically, as I said, this was McKeever's big break, though, is he gave a copy of the book to somebody in Slavery Labor Graphics, which then picked up the book. And also interesting to note that in 2005, um, The Waiting Place was optioned for production into a possible TV series by a company called Venture Management. Although, to my knowledge, nothing ever came of this because there's nothing about it beyond the articles about that being optioned. It's a shame, too. This would have made a great television series and I think it still would especially with the popularity of novels by authors such as John Green who wrote The Fault in Our Stars which is a pretty big movie at least among the kids when it came out last year. I actually as as of this recording read Green's novel Paper Towns which which came out in 2008 has been produced as a film that's coming out in late July. That novel which I'll actually talk about somewhere at length as part of the Next episode, I think, owes a lot to the type of story that McKeever is telling here, but McKeever doesn't necessarily rely on the same tropes that Green does. There's no Manic Pixie Dream Girls, for instance. But I will say that the waiting replace reminds me a lot of the great ensemble pieces, my so called life, for instance, a series that I covered extensively last August with a big two parter. McKeever, by the way, has in a pretty impressive resume since the conclusion of The Waiting Place. He's written for both DC and Marvel. He has uh, a run on Teen Titans, which was, well, knowing that there was editorial meddling and reading it with that in mind, it is still uneven in places, but in my most recent reread, I've come around on it a little bit more. I think it holds up pretty well, to be honest. But that Titans run is another post, another episode, somewhere another day. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to take a break and come back with my review, which I'm going to do in four sections. I'm going to cover each book and then the epilogue. And while I know that you can buy the whole thing in one big collection, I'm reviewing it this way because this is how I first read it. I read it in three separate pieces, then then I read the epilogue. So, spoiler warning for anybody who hasn't read it would want to go through and read it before I do this, but I'm going to kind of give everything away. And when I do that... It'll be after this break, so stick around and come back for book one of The Waiting Place. Calabac, decide. It is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman
1: and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and
2: Hawkman. 2D man and our man Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC Who's who? Mm -hmm. Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold Lightning Lass and Hippolyta Phantom Stranger, Ettrick and Arisia And Woody Winks Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel Mr. Lipstick Mm -hmm. Mr. Mitzelfuzzle Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him! He's also part of the DC Who's who? Who's who the definitive podcast of the DC universe
3: available monthly at Aquaman shrine firestorm fan and on iTunes and stitcher as part of the fire and water podcast.
0: As I mentioned, book one of The Waiting Place was published in individual issues by both Sean McKeever himself and Slave Labor Graphics before it was collected in the trade paperback that was put out by Slave Labor Graphics in 2001. I'm actually using that for reference, although there is very little difference between the way that these trades present them and the IDW Definitive Edition, except for the fact that the page size of the Definitive Edition is actually smaller. The Slave Labor graphics trade is the size of your typical trade paperback. While the Definitive Edition is smaller, it's about as tall as a Dark Horse Comics omnibus. At least it's the measure I'm going by because I took a look over at my shelf and I see these Star Wars a long time ago omnibus editions, and they're about the same height as this one. Book 1 opens up with a quick introduction of most, if not all, the major characters we'll be seeing throughout the series. There is Scott Forbes, who is in his 20s and works at his parents' video store. Jeffrey Dietz, who is a brand new transfer student to Northern Plains High School for his senior year, which is something that immediately causes him stress. Jill Patterson, a very attractive freshman girl. Kyle Donovan, a foul-mouthed juvenile delinquent who has a rough home life. and Laura Halstead, a senior who we realize right off the bat has her fair share of wild times. There are characters that by the end of the first chapter we get to know, especially Jeremy, Justin, and Chris, who are these three guys who sort of are sort of friends with our main characters. Well, friends in the sense that they just always seem to be hanging around, kind of in a Jan Silent Bob sort of way. In fact, one of them constantly mumbles. Rounding out the cast are two characters whose stories are more or less done by the end of the first book. First is Senior Class President Stephen Randall, and another one is Matt the Anarchist. Northern Plains is basically a summer tourist trap for the people of the state, the type of town where the population booms during most that time of the year so that people can spend their days fishing, boating, swimming, and hunting. In fact, a running joke in the book is that every single store seems to be turning into a t-shirt shop, which I can actually relate to on some level. For a while, Sable, the town on Long Island where I grew up, seemed to be accumulating a good collection of gift shops. During the fall and winter in Northern Plains, after the tourists have left, the town more or less dies. There are people like Scott's parents who own the local video store, and Jeffrey's parents who have moved to the area to run a local sporting goods store, and they do well enough, but the idea that you can get is that there really isn't much to do in the town, and I think the phrase, the waiting place, comes from these characters' desire to do something more with themselves beyond their lives in Northern Plains, or at least they're waiting for something to happen. Each of these characters' problems happens thusly. Jeffrey has an incredible hard time fitting in, especially when he runs afoul of Kyle for what seems to be no reason other than being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He doesn't even seem to get a break romantically, as it seems that Jill is interested in him, but then he goes drinking in the woods one weekend night and he finds her with Kyle. Scott, who apparently was some big-shot theater student back in high school, has not been able to get over his ex-girlfriend named Amy. They were one of those class couples, so to speak, destined to be together forever. But he broke up with her before he went away to college and then, realizing his mistake, tried to get her back to no avail. He then flunked out and landed back in Northern Plains at the video store. Laura, well, at this point, Laura drinks a lot and has sex a lot. This will be important later. Scott, by the way, is not doing so well especially considering that Amy is still in town, is married to a local cop, and Scott can't seem to find anyone his own age to hang out with. He's not even Wooderson. He's just the older guy who hangs out at the park and can get the kids beer but isn't the leader of the pack or anything. He's also having problems in the past year with other ways. He can't seem to get over Amy yet when he hangs out with a childhood friend named Jay to have a few beers and watch the demolition of their old elementary school. He goes off on Jay about the fact that he doesn't want to get nostalgic and reminisce because he's not like everyone else in Northern Plains. And he isn't content to sit around and hit the same dead end as his parents. Jay yells back at him and tells him to basically get over himself and to settle some peace between the two of them. Gives Scott a little bit more motivation to do something about his hang-up on Amy later in the story. The class president, Stephen, by the way is harboring a big secret, and that is that he's gay. His father, who doesn't know it, seems to do nothing but belittle him for for dating girls from outside of town, because he gives the dad the excuse that he's going to see Melissa one night. She's not from around here. When he drives out to the house of his boyfriend, who happens to be an older adult man, he sees the guy with a woman and turns around and runs away. Matt the Anarchist is the person who comes to Jeffrey's aid when Kyle doesn't seem to want to let up on his harassment. Everyone, and I mean everyone, seems to be scared of this guy, and it seems to be for good reason because Matt's some sort of mad computer expert and hacker and has the dirt on everyone it seems, or he at least can get it. Kyle challenges him to a fight and Matt shows up to fight him one night, but before the fight can even begin, the police arrive and haul Kyle off to jail with intent to distribute drugs. The other character introduced in the book who plays a central role all the way through to the end of the book is Cullen Cole, a brand new student who arrives in town with his parents during Chapter 5, which is the penultimate chapter of Book 1. Cullen and his family are African American and wind up being the only black family in the entire town. This winds up being the source of a lot of tension, especially for Cullen who has to put up with immature behavior, such as guys in the locker room wanting to take a peek at him naked to see how well hung he is. As well as outwardly hostile racism. The last chapter of the book one brings all of these strings together, not to close out the story, mind you, but to set us up for what will be the major plot points of book two. Jill goes to see Kyle in jail and he tells her that he wants nothing to do with her, which leads to her leaving the jail in tears and attempting suicide. Laura, who has a crush on Scott, overhears him telling his mom that he loves Amy and gives Scott the cold shoulder. Then she talks to Jeffrey in Church about whatever their relationship status is because they'd hooked up at a party and she proceeded to avoid him afterward. They wind up more or less being friends at this point. Cullen and his parents have to deal with more strange looks, whispering, and racist remarks from the locals. And at the very end of the book, Amy and her family come into the video store. And after she leaves, Scott decides he's going to do it. He's going to tell her how he feels. He races down the street and confronts her and her husband, yelling, STOP! as they pull away in their minivan. They stop and get out of the car, but before Scott can really say what he's feeling, a black sedan pulls up and a window rolls down to reveal the muzzle of a gun. Out of the three books that make up The Waiting Place, this is actually the weakest. That's not to say it's a bad comic. In fact, it's really good. But by the time you get going about book two, you notice that McKeever has matured and developed as a writer. Here, this being his first work, at least one of his first works, is pretty evident. Some of the storylines are a little heavy-handed and a bit far-fetched. Some of the situations, such as the ending, seem a bit unrealistic. I say seem, by the way, especially when it comes to the apparent drive-by shooting at the end of the book, because when you read book two, McKeever actually has made it make total sense. And you can see how he set that up here. The storyline with Colin and his family is a little predictable at first. Black family moves into a white area, people have an enormous adverse reaction, but this is also where some of McKeever's best writing takes place. There are moments of outright hostility, such as when Scott has to tell off a racist customer in the video store, but there are some subtle and not-so-subtle emotional moments. This girl, who kind of has a crush on Colin and Will throughout most of the rest of the book, flirts with him a little bit in class, and the teacher pulls her aside and is like, you know, you don't want me to tell your parents about this, do you? And there's the the, the scene where the family attends church and everyone stops what they're doing and stares, you know, because they're the black family. The scene in the locker room with the guys wanting to check out his dick is actually kind of funny in the way that McKeever writes guys like that exactly how immature guys like that would act and you're both kind of laughing and shaking your head at the same time. His strongest stuff, though, is in the relationships that he develops between the characters and not the actual plot lines, which is why I wanted to pick up Volume 2 after I had read Volume 1. Granted, I thought that the Stephen being gay storyline was a little heavy-handed and seemed to be a subplot that only served to show how close minded the town was and maybe on some level get us ready for how everyone in town reacted toward the Coles. Matt, the anarchist, can get you in trouble because he has a computer bit. Well, it was a little groan-worthy even if it did set up the ending, which is important for book two. But the development of Jeffrey, Scott, Laura, and Jill is done so well. Jill's suicide attempt seems so overdramatic, but we're supposed to get her her relationship with Kyle moved incredibly fast, so this is an equal and opposite reaction to it. Laura has this really subtle crush on Scott that reveals someone who is kind of vulnerable underneath the girl who loves to drink MD-2020 and screw with impunity. And speaking of Scott, what I love about his relationship with Amy is that how in Chapter 2, we get all these flashbacks to his and Amy's relationships, and we're led along a little bit to think that Scott's like the jilted boyfriend, only to find out that he dumped her, because he was just incredibly arrogant. And then she wouldn't take him back when he came crawling back to her, and he basically drank himself back to Northern Plains. There's a roughness to a lot of what we see in Book 1 of The Waiting Place. But knowing that will be smoothed out and what McKeever is doing here is setting up a lot of really important character beats is what makes it completely worthwhile. The artwork, by the way, is also the weakest of the three books. In books 2, 3, as well as the epilogue, McKeever would be working with Mike Norton, who is currently penciling the amazing Image series Revival, which I'm admittedly way behind on, <laughs> but I still do love it. Here he's with the Frames, who do a serviceable job, but the art, well, it sounds so stupid, cranky, asshat, comic review guy to say, well, it feels like an independent comic book, but it feels like an independent in comic book. It's detailed where it needs to be for the most part and all the characters have a discernible look and the two make everyone and everything look realistic but it's really stiff in some places. Jill especially looks off throughout all of book one. She's supposed to be a freshman and it looks like well, they seem to draw her to look as old as Laura or even Amy. Norton, who also drew the cover to the book one trade paperback, would remedy this and make her look considerably younger than the rest of the most of the cast, which she is. But it might be a taste thing for me, especially since I like the youthful vibrancy of that the latter books have as opposed to this. Being in black and white as are all the chapters of this book works well for the story. I think that if it were colored and it would it would be mostly black and white backgrounds. as you can kind of tell that Northern Plains has sort of a grayness to it, especially during the time of all the that all the waiting place is set, which is basically from the beginning of the school year to late August, early September to New Year's Eve. That's it for book one. When I get back, I'll look at book two. This is an imaginary
3: podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Tintin. Black Lightning White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't gonna win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. This is Ultra Seven, this is Ultraman Jack, and this Ultraman Taro, and this Ultraman Leo, and this Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Short Box Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Short Box Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family.
1: Travel. You feel such peace and absolute the stillness, still, that doesn't end but slowly drifts into sleep. The stars are the greatest thing you've ever seen. And
0: When book two of The Waiting Place opens, it's been two months since the end of book one. And to recap, I'm actually going to read what the first page of the slave labor graphics trade has to say about that, because it's this great summary of when we last left our major characters. When we last saw Jeffrey Dietz, the newcomer had finally found a slightly silver lining to the dark cloud that is Northern Plains. Cullen Cole, his friendship with Scott Forbes was helping him overcome the frustration brought on by the town's deeply embedded racism. Kyle Donovan, he'd been in jail in connection with narcotics distribution charges. Jill Patterson, the incredibly harsh words of her boyfriend Kyle had brought her to seriously contemplating suicide. Laura Halstead, she found her camaraderie with Scott soured while her association with Jeffrey had begun to blossom. Scott Forbes, he, his ex-girlfriend, her husband, and Kyle's brother Bobby were in the firing line of a drive-by shooting. I felt this was important to note because this is, as it is, it is pretty evident early on, McKeever's unloaded two characters from book one, Stephen and Matt the Anarchist. Stephen I don't think is actually mentioned at all from this point on. During the course of the first chapter of this book, someone mentions offhand that Matt more or less has disappeared off the face of the earth and nobody knows where he went, which by the way is clever when you think about him and very in character for him. I should also note the book, too, as a credit change. As I mentioned, McKeever's still writing, but now the on art is Mike Norton with David Yurkovich doing the layouts. We open two months later, and by the end of chapter one, have caught up on where exactly those main characters are now. Jeffrey's trying to fit in, he's got a friendship with Laura, he seems really concerned from Jill, who's back with Kyle and back in school following her suicide attempt. Cullen and his family are still dealing with some of the same issues with his parents getting harassed for apparently bringing their, quote, street crime to Northern Plains in the form of the drive-by shooting at the end of the previous book, and Cullen getting into fights with some of the wonderful racists at the school. Jeffrey, by the way, steps in to defend Cullen at one point and gets decked for it, but the two become friends as a result. Scott, by the way, has disappeared into the bottle after Amy was killed in the drive-by, which was not any sort of, quote, street crime that Cullen's family brought to Northern Plains, but was a botched hit on Kyle's little brother as a way to send a message for him to him not to snitch on the two guys who were his drug dealers. Oh, and Laura's pregnant. Kyle gets a little more spotlight in this book with a storyline about his dad taking him and his younger brother hunting, during which Kyle's father has a heart attack. This coincides with two separate stories involving sports, the main one which is, of which is Jeffrey's performance on the hockey team in an important game. Then again, this is Northern Plains, and every hockey game is an important game. In fact, it's more or less like high school football is around here, complete with pushy parents who think their kids are entitled to play just because they're a big-time booster, as well as douchebag first stringers who treat newcomers like Jeffrey like absolute crap. Jeffrey gets some redemption, though, as he gets a game-winning assist. Meanwhile, the school's basketball coach tries to recruit Cullen because, you know, he's black. And Scott continues to drink and drunkenly think about past glories, including scoring a winning goal in the state championship. Scott, by the way, eventually gets himself together after one night where he gets drunk at the bar again. A few of his former friends rough him up, and then he gets pulled over by Amy's husband, Tom, for drinking and driving. Tom puts him in the back of a police cruiser. Scott proceeds to brag about how he was the best that Amy ever had, which enrages Tom enough to stop the car, take Scott out of the back, and throw a punch at him. Scott hits him back and then runs into the woods as memories of Amy flash through his head. He sees a vision of her that tells him to let her go. The next morning, he wakes up in Tom and Amy's house, and Tom tells him all about his relationship with Amy and how hung up she was on Scott for so long, and that she eventually learned to let him go. Scott decides to walk home even though he lives about five miles away, and he runs happily, obviously having let go himself. Book two closes with Jeffrey being forced to work one night in his parents' store when he was supposed to be hanging out, and meeting a very cute girl when she comes in to buy oil for her snowmobile. He asks her out, and they spend the night together. It's much more optimistic of an ending for this book than book one, but the book did begin on an incredibly down note. Now, I've blown over that last chapter and completely left out another chapter that is all about Laura. That's because there wasn't any way for me to talk about them without reviewing them completely, so I'm going to get to them in a minute. What McKeever does in Book 2 is what he absolutely needed to do, which is trim some fat and then give a little more in-depth to the characters who were relatively one-dimensional in Book 1. Matt the Anarchist really didn't matter to me, and he really didn't need to be there beyond what we saw. And I liked the way he kind of got rid of him off screen by having the office secretary just explain to Jeffrey that Matt vanished without a trace. And the other storyline with Stephen was, well, it served a purpose to show how provincial and closed-minded the town is. It was pretty heavy-handed, and honestly, we have the story about Cullen to show us how closed-minded and bigoted many of the people of the town can be. Out of all the storylines, I'd probably say it's the weakest because the people in the town come off as almost like they're caricatures of racist town folk. At the same time, it's also really accurate. What keeps the scenes with Cullen and his family from going completely over the edge into something that is overplayed is is how McKeever writes the Coles as a family. The father is very resilient and calm, and you can tell that he's a very strong person. Cullen's lost in the same way that Jeffrey was, but with the added complication of his dealing with racist assholes in the school. I like how Jeffrey comes to his aid because McKeever's setting his characters up to be part of the same carass to borrow a phrase from Amber Vallone, in that they will all intersect in one way or another, but it's a way that's like organic. This isn't like when 90210 needed to keep David Silver relevant so they basically turned him into one of the cool kids and he had his best friend blow his head off by twirling a handgun. But really, the way Cullen's making friends with Scott and Jeffrey, because they're simply nice people who get along with him, helps him develop as a character. Kyle does get a little more development here as well, which doesn't work to make him more sympathetic necessarily, he's not the villain of the story or anything. But he's not a hero. Instead, we really see how rough his life is, and we also get a glimpse into his and his brother's futures. You kind of assume that at some point or another, Kyle and Bobby are going to wind up spending their days like Dad because Dad probably was just like they were in high school. And his story, which is of a night of hunting gone wrong, dovetails very nicely with the whole Jeffrey hockey storyline. It makes so much sense that a town like Northern Plains would consider the Friday night hockey game the most important event of the week, and that you'd have the same issues with parents that you get with, say, football, soccer, or baseball, and every other part of the country. McKeever gets that ex- culture exactly right. And even though Jeffrey winds up being a bit of a hero in a scene, he's not exactly the big man on campus after this point. What this really serves to do, among other things, is just to put to rest the storyline that Jeffrey is con- constantly an outsider, so that we can focus on the more personal parts of his story, which is his relationship with Laura. Which, by the way, at this point does not necessarily exist. They went out back in book one, and her friends here, but at the hockey game, he sees her with another guy, and at the end of the book, he's got this night with this girl named Jessica. Plus, Laura's got a secret. I'll talk about Laura first, because it wasn't until the epilogue that McKeever and Mike Norton did for the IDW trade that I felt that the pregnancy that's revealed in chapter one of book two, well, up until that point, I felt it was a big plot hole. It honestly doesn't get that much mention between now and the end of Book 3, although, to be honest, the amount of time that passes between the beginning of Book 2 and the end of Book 3 is just shy of two months, so it's not like Laura's going to be visibly pregnant by the end of the series, and she might not have come out of the denial stages she's obviously in for quite a bit of the book. Although McKeever does give us more insight into her character as more than the perpetually drunk, slutty, quote, alternative chick that he'd set her up to be when we met her. Chapter 4, which I skipped over when I was doing my synopsis, is a spotlight on her through the premise that her diary fell out of her backpack and a random guy found it, and he spends the entire chapter reading it. We get details about her rendezvous with various guys. When we get to the middle of November and the positive pregnancy test, she skips over it, which helps fuel the idea that it's not mentioned after this because she's not thinking about it either. And all the while, we're seeing the guy that she's dating on and off, and the other guy that she's hooked up with, and Jeffrey. And toward the end of this, she wonders what she wants, and then she tells her diary. You know what I need, huh? Do you? It's not actually what I need, I guess. It's what I think I need. It's what I want. It's a simple thing, really. I don't understand why it hasn't happened already. I mean... Not that I think I'm all that and a bag of chips or anything. Crap. Okay, here. What I want is someone to tell me they care. And I don't mean my parents or some guy I'm doing or the guidance counselor. Sometimes I see the beauty inside me. I see my potential and I see the goodness and attractiveness of my soul. I wish there was someone who could see it too. Almost like a guardian angel. I want somebody to be watching over me. They're heart aching with compassion for me, completely aware of my purity and my misery and my need to be loved. My need to love. And I want that person, my angel, to tell me they care. It sounds very selfish, but I don't care about that. Because I'm tired of being sad and alone and afraid. Tired of just existing for myself. November 24th, just a quickie note for you. I forgot you in my gym locker, so I went back to get you and it finally happened. overheard Lisa, Carla, and Diane talking about me. A window into society's collective noggin. What do they say, you ask? Well, it wasn't nice. It wasn't nice at all. After being scared and curious about what people think of me, and after hearing some downright nasty shit about me, I did the strangest thing. I smiled. The last two pages of the chapter are silent as Laura heads to the lunch line. And as she's waiting for her food, the guy who is reading her diary, the entire issue, walks up behind her, whispers in her ear, and then disappears, leaving her a little surprised. Then we get the title of the story. I Care. It's a great use of putting the title of a story at the end of a story, and the way her reaction is drawn, with just her face looking surprised in one panel, and then her turning around to see nobody there then panning out to the lunch line, followed by the quote. McKeever, Yurkovich, and Norton really get the emotion of the scene right. By the way, this one chapter is the entire reason that I held on to my original trades, because in the IDW Definitive Edition, the title of the chapter is put at the beginning, and the end of the chapter is blank. So there's no revelation, so to speak, just blank space. And I suppose it has a similar impact as the title at the end, but still, come on, IDW... And yes, it's me being inortentive because this story st- still makes you like Laura even more. And as she and Jeffrey slowly make their way toward something, you start rooting for the two of them, even though the book ends up with this cute little story about Jeffrey and Jessica. It matters in the big k- picture because of his relationship with Laura, and we'll see that in book three, but this book seems to be about Jeffrey getting at least some little victories here and there, and it's a cute beat to end on, especially after we've dealt with the pretty rotten life of Kyle, the inner conflict of Laura, and the turmoil of Scott. By the way, when Jessica and Jeffrey are getting coffee in the last chapter, there's a great little Easter eggs. They're sitting at a booth at a diner, And you hear someone yell, Francine, wait, don't go, please don't go. And a guy with a goatee chases after Brunette, who is walking out all ticked off. If you didn't catch the reference, that's Francine and Freddy from Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise. But back to Scott, who is the bulk of the drama here. And that makes sense because he was at the center of the cliffhanger that ended book one. To have it end with Amy's husband, Tom, confronting Scott after pulling him over was excellent because it showed how Scott's diving into the bottle and constant state of grief was selfish and that he wasn't mourning her so much as he was just beating himself up for ending their relationship after high school was over. The art, by the way, is better from here on out. David Yurkovich did the layouts in book two, Mike Norton did the art on books two, and he will do all the art on book three, and Norton makes this feel like a story about teenagers. Each of the characters has his or her own distinct look and moreover, looks like their respective ages. Jill looks like a freshman, Scott looks like the guy who's just a bit too old to be hanging around these kids. He also employs a very well cartoonish sort of style that actually makes this book more even more fun to read. But there is more to read and more to talk about. And I'll get to book three after this.
2: Star Trek Comic books, mythology, video games, toys, Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with. And be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at 2TrueFreaks.com.
0: Three of The Waiting Place was originally published in Trade in July of 2003, and this time around Mike Norton is both the artist and the letterer. It's listed on the spine as Volume 2, Part 2. It's meant to round out everything established in the previous volume. There's no previously listing like in the second book, so we jump into Chapter 7 and pick up more or less where we left off. Jill at this point has been working at the video store for a little while and is still with Kyle, although he's treating her like complete crap. We first see her talking to someone and realize it's a picture of her father who has been dead for years. And then she tells her problems to Scott. The biggest problem at this point is that he keeps blowing her off and doesn't seem to be concerned that her mother wants to meet her. This is Kyle we're talking about. And if Kyle won't meet her mother, Jill won't be able to go out with him. We see some more of Kyle's anger problems He roughs up somebody who asks him about his dad. And even though he does show up for dinner, Jill winds up breaking up with him anyway. Then she totally burns the guy she overheard call her damaged goods when he flirts with her at the video store. Meanwhile, Jeffrey begins writing a letter to Jessica while working at his parents' store one night and he's interrupted by Laura, who has stopped to buy a Billy Big Mouth Bass, but really came in to see how he is. He asks her about the guy she was seeing and it... Looks like their conversation might go further, but they're interrupted by a drunk customer that Scott has sent their way from the video store. What ensues is a couple of pranks back and forth between Scott and Jill and Laura and Jeffrey, followed by a snowball fight. At the end of the snowball fight, Laura and Jeffrey kiss. Later that night, he crumples up the letter to Jessica. This isn't the last of the Jessica situation, by the way, because sometime later she calls him. She wants to come see him and hang out. Laura, who is not aware of Jeffrey's hooking up with Jessica at all because of the time that it's happened, the two of them weren't talking to one another, gets incredibly jealous. After quite a bit of back and forth about where she's increasingly angry at him and he doesn't really know what to do, Jeffrey decides to cancel plans with Jessica because of the way he was happy about he and Laura, how he and Laura were getting back into gear, as he puts it. But his conversation with Laura about it doesn't go as perfectly as he probably had hoped. They more or less do break up, but they remain friends. While this is going on, Northern Plains is paid a visit by Bobby Martin, a guy who went to school with Scott who is about to make his major motion picture debut in a Jerry Bruckheimer flick called The Price. Bobby's the town's greatest success story, a local celebrity, and even appears to be pretty nice to Scott, offering to put him up if Scott still has his heart set in trying to make it to Hollywood. Scott is blown away by this and is all set to go to the point where he's practicing being interviewed while working at the video store. Something that Jill, who has an obvious crush on him, finds endearing. His parents are not too happy about these plans, though, because they were planning on retiring and giving him the video store. Jill's not happy about it either, but he simply says, well, she's just a kid. It breaks her heart, and you can tell that Scott feels a little guilty about it, but he's resolute in his desire to take off for the West Coast and goes down to the bar to talk to Bobby about getting those plans going, arriving just in time to overhear Bobby tell Jay, this childhood friend, the one all the way from back from book one, that it's all a joke. You see, Scott was kind of arrogant about how great of an actor he was back in high school. Bobby hated him for that. So as a way of getting back at him, Bobby gave Scott a fake address and a phone number. Scott overhears this, but is determined to get out anyway. He goes home, he packs his suitcase, leaves a family photo behind, and screams,
2: I'm out of here,
0: while driving away in his pickup. He barely makes it out of town because he forgot his mixtapes. Then he returns to the video store, where when he gets inside, he finally realizes the truth about everything, and he breaks down and cries before opening for business. Cullen's storyline takes a different and more personal turn in this book with the development of the romance and the introduction of his older brother christian who comes home from college on winter break christian it seems is the superstar of the family a really cool outgoing guy and colin's kind of more of the shy kid on the day christian comes home colin's hanging out with jill's friend kathy and is watching a movie they're flirting with one another heavily but then christian shows up and does what he always seems to do which is steal the spotlight Even though Kathy thinks he's nice, she leaves Christian to find Cullen sulking in his room. She attempts to flirt with him again, and seeing that he won't stop sulking, just asks to be taken home. While driving her home, he explains how he's always simply been Christian's little brother and how he's not much of anything in comparison. Kathy simply leaves, although obviously wishes he would have made a move. Unfortunately, the move Cullen makes is sucker-punching his older brother when he gets home and getting into a fight that ends with Cullen in the fetal position and crying. All of three of these stories converge in the book's final chapter, which takes place on New Year's Eve and centers around the group trying to find something decent to do with their time. Scott tried to throw a party, but Jeffrey, the burnout's a couple of guys, and two girls who spend the entire night arguing over Magic the Gathering are the only people who showed up, so they decide to go to a bigger party, which is where Jill's headed, and her friend Sandy picks her up. She's with two other girls who are juniors and who make cutting remarks in her direction that are your typical stupid mean girls type of comments. Everyone but Scott manages to get into the party, so what he does is he heads back to his place, and he narrowly avoids hitting a deer. Instead, he tips his pickup on its side, and just as he gets out of the car, Laura pulls up to him and offers him a ride. They head back to the video store and have a nice conversation over a couple of movies, toasting to friendship, and Scott admits that at one point he had a crush on Laura. She gives him a big hug and a peck on the cheek before being interrupted by the three burnouts who want him to hook them up with beer, which he does. Back at the party, Colin arrives with Christian, and, and Christian is a hit at the party, which Colin responds to by drinking heavily. Jeffrey's getting so boldly trashed as well while playing asshole, and Jill overhears the two junior girls asking her friend Sandy about the suicide attempt, and Sandy responding that she thinks that Jill did it for the attention. To make matters worse, just as she is about to leave the party in tears, Kyle shows up with another girl on his arm jill runs away from the party jeffrey follows when he catches up to her she falls into his arms crying about how she'd started hanging out with sandy again thinking things would be okay and back to normal but they made fun of her for basically not being cool and sandy sold her out even though it's all true she did it for the attention she asks jeffrey to take her home but he says he she can't be alone and upset on New year's eve and he tells her he knows where they can go Back at the party, Kyle shows up and sees a drunken, despondent Colin sitting on a couch, so he decides to start showing off his extensive vocabulary of racist slurs. He's a decent ways into his rant when Christian shows up, stands right behind him, and then cold cocks him. Kyle runs out, screaming that Christian broke his nose, and Christian, Colin, Kathy, and her friend, who I think is named Gina, leave. Kathy sits in the backseat with Colin and tells him about how Christian spent the night telling her that Kathy would be stupid not to give Colin another chance. Then they kiss. They arrive at the same place where Jeffrey took Jill, which is Scott's house. Laura refers to it as the Island of Misfit Partiers. And we have this nice moment where everyone is friends with one another and things aren't complicated by love angst or drama and all of the things that have happened since our story began then jeffrey heads to a dock where scott is sitting down and nursing a beer and they talk jeffrey says there you are scott says i'm glad you brought jill she's had a pretty rough you know i hate to think she was alone tonight yeah how are you and jeffrey says i'm good i'm guess. I signed up for summer school so I can actually go to college in the fall. I wanted to move and get a job right after graduation, but oh well. I mean, what's a few months, right? Scott says, my folks are going to be headed to Florida next winter, so I'm taking over the shop. The way I see it, I get a nice salary, I don't have to pay rent, and I have my own place for half the year. Do you know what New Year's Day is? It's just another day everyone thinks like when the clock strikes midnight you suddenly get to this new chapter in your life but it's nothing like that you know you still have the same bills to pay you still have to go to the same job you still have to look the same you in the mirror life isn't made of nice neat little chapters not really it's like if you believe in it New Year's Day is the greatest letdown in the history of letdowns and then they come up, the guys come up, and here we hear one of them say, I say, God damn, we wonder where you bitches went off to. Laura says, we got the champagne out because we figured it was almost midnight, but no one knows the time it is. Christian asks, either you got a watch? And Jeffrey says, yeah, it's 1242. Happy New Year. I remember when I saw this solicited in previews, um, I was really excited. Because by this time, I had really come to love this, this story, as well as the characters, and I wanted to know what happened to them. I think during my first read-through, I was slightly disappointed that Laura's pregnancy wasn't really addressed at all, and like I said, to me, at this time, it seemed like a huge plot hole. Of course, I then realized that while a couple of years had passed in my reading it, only a few weeks to a month or so had passed since the end of the second book. And I know that sounds silly of me to say, but there are those times when you're reading comics month to month, or in this case, trades year to year, and you forget that the time frame of the actual story you're reading is much shorter than the time it takes for it to come out. So knowing that, it makes sense that Laura wouldn't mention this as the story went on. It's very possible that she could be in denial, especially based on what we'll see in the epilogue. This time around, the story has gotten much more personal for each of the characters, but there's also less despair than there is in both books one or two. We don't see Scott pining for Amy and drowning himself in alcohol. We don't see Cullen's family dealing with the town's racism, although the racism doesn't necessarily go away. What we get in here is just about everything coming full circle, and the characters all more or less finding themselves in a somewhat satisfying place. I've always been torn on the Scott storyline in book three, though. On one hand, it seems that it's there because we simply need something for Scott to do. On the other hand, we need to see Scott realize something about himself, and that is nobody is going to swoop in and take him away from Northern Plains. If he wants to leave the place that he obviously feels trapped in, he's going to have to do it himself. The joke that Bobby Martin plays on him is, in all honesty, really mean, but it's not too far-fetched. I've got friends from high school who still get harassed by people who used to harass them in high school. And some people don't give up grudges 20 years down the road. Plus, Bobby can come home and play big man to the people in the town because he's probably the only person who's ever become famous after leaving Northern Plains. Scott seems frustrated at the end of the story, although he seems to appreciate that he's got friends, even if he is a bit of a dick to Jill, who obviously has a crush on him. Cullen's storyline, by the way, is really well done this time around, too. I like that McKeever moves us beyond the not-fitting-in-because-he's-black storyline that he had going for the first two books to the identity crisis that he has with regarding his brother, as well as the fact that this girl, Kathy, likes him. You really feel for him, and while it takes a fist fight, I like how we see Christian will always stand up for his brother and will always be there for him. It's not enough that he breaks Kyle's nose, which is great, by the way, When he tells Kathy that Colin's a great guy and she'd be crazy for not giving him another chance, you know that that's stepping in. That that's that's doing somebody really really solid. And there's Jeffrey and Laura, who seem to be friends at the end of all this because they can never make whatever it was between them work. This relationship had a natural progression over the course of all three books. Jeffrey and Laura hooked up very briefly way back at the beginning, but it didn't exactly, well, they didn't seem to date. And Laura's tendency not to really settle on one person was a source of conflict. Then there was Jessica and them getting back together, and in the words of a Facebook relationship status, it's complicated. There's an awful lot of shipping going on in book three, which, with various results, she makes Stella happy. But this is a story about teenagers, <laughs> and the way McKeever tells it, the relationships, they don't seem forced. Kathy liked Colin all the way in book one, where she was helping with the geometry work, and their te- that's when their teacher pulled her aside and warned her about flirting with the black boy, saying, what if your father knew? Obviously, she doesn't care <laughs> by the end of the story, but Colin's so shy that this allows their romance to happen very slowly, much like we've seen with Laura and Jeffrey, who come to the very mature conclusion about their only being able to be just friends. Jill, I think, is one of the best characters for this book, especially because of the scene at the party where she tells Jeffrey that her suicide attempt was for attention. She's tried, sometimes desperately, to fit in and be popular, and that has repeatedly ended badly. And so did her relationships. I think her crush on Scott is supposed to be an example of her finding the opposite of Kyle... Someone who is safe in a way, although Scott's comment that she's just a kid is is mean. I really can't say much more about Mike Norton's artwork beyond what I've already said. It's great. It really compliments the story. In fact, I think it's better in this book than it was in book two. And overall, I love this, especially how it's all wrapped up. At the end, we have a night of going from party to party until all our characters meet up and celebrate New Year's Eve at the same place. And that ending is, well... It's not a John Hughes ending, per se. It's a little bit more of a Ridgemont ending. Everyone has some sort of resolution. But there are some questions that are left unanswered, and what's satisfying is that you also want to know what happened to all the characters after the last page. Now, fortunately, McKeever, Norton, and IDW answered some of those questions in the epilogue, which I'll cover right after this.
4: Oh,
2: hello. We didn't see you there. Welcome to Comic Book Fight Club. My name is Jeff S. Fishman, Esquire. And I am Gene Theodore Hendricks. Here at Comic Book Fight Club, we sit fireside sipping our brandy and discussing who would win in a bout of fisticuffs with other members of the comic book Illuminati. Yes, you caught us at a good time as Kevin Smith, Stanley, and the late Bob Kane just went on a beer and nacho run. Have you ever wondered who would be victorious in a bout? Galactus or Unicron? How about the Incredible Hulk versus the Monster Doomsday? What about G.I. Joe versus the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Or the equally important bout of the Snorks? versus the smurfs and of course the titanic duel between archie and jimmy olsen and you can expect the intelligent and erudite debates to sound something like this but i always thought transformers fans were intelligent
3: literate so they should see that galactus has to be the winner
2: like he's hungry oh i'm so hungry i'm gonna get weaker and and
4: and and reed richards is gonna be able to beat me
2: I don't know anything about Rob other than uh, he was defeated by Parker Brothers. Oh, mean, back, to, back to one of Sean's points, saying he got out of the out of the like, You know, every time he's gotten out of that in any story, he has to get put
3: back in it because he's a bitch.
2: Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh! Oh! oh, oh, oh no! No! She, she, oh, I tap she, out! I tap out! You I are a out. sick, sick man. Tonight. I'm not familiar with the last one. I need. I might um, have to hit Google image search. She, yeah. So won't you join us for some witty discourse, a fine snuff, and a tincture of sherry as we debate over these all-important matters, here only on Comic Book Fight Club. You can find the show at two twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes by searching for Comic Book Fight Club. Please also join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash comic book fight club.
0: Toward the beginning of the episode, in 2009, IDW published an omnibus-like edition of *The Waiting Place* that they called the definitive edition. I hadn't intended on getting it because I had all three trade paperbacks, and I didn't want to spend $29.99 on something I already owned. But there was something different about this trade—an epilogue of about 24 pages. It's seven years later, and we are at Hawk King's Bar in Northern Plains, where a couple is arguing. He calls her Lisa, and she says, My name is Kathy, which suggests that maybe this is the same Kathy we saw with the Cullen seven years ago? It's not entirely clear, because we don't see much more of them. Instead, we shift our attention to the bartender, Laura Halstead, who's cleaning up. She's startled when she hears her name and sees three very perky 21-year-old girls walk into the bar, the lead one of which is Jill Patterson. It's Jill's 21st birthday, and her and her friends Maria and Jen have rented a cabin over in Ashburg so they can spend the weekend while getting trashed. She decided to come by and have a few drinks. Laura pours some shots, and Jill says she doesn't recognize anybody in the place. It's then when Laura directs her to the pool room where Scott is shooting pool against Kyle. She hugs Scott just as Jeremy, Justin, and Chris, who of course are still the same guys hanging out in the same way, burst into the bar, see Maria and Jen declaring them fresh meat. Scott and Jill catch up. She asks about Jeffrey. Scott says, you didn't know? and takes her out to his car, leaving Jen and Maria with the three guys, much to their chagrin. As Scott and Jill drive, we find out that Jeffrey and his mother left Northern Plains after his father died, and Scott said that Jeffrey and his mom were both killed by his father's ghost. Obviously, this is a joke. So we really don't know what happened to him other than the fact that he moved away. Scott then takes Jill to the video store, which is no longer a video store. The conversion to DVD was too costly, and it put them out of business. It's now a t-shirt shop that Scott manages. He takes her into the store, into the back storeroom to show her that written on the wall is, love you Scott, Kyle can eat a D, which Jill obviously wrote back when she was a freshman in high school. He mentions that she had a crush on him, that he was a dick to her. She recalls that she said he said she was just a kid, and he replies, well, she's not a kid anymore. Jill thinks he's joking around at first, but then she realizes he's serious. She looks at him in shock, and then heads back to the bar, gathering Maria and Jen, who are in the middle of making out with two of the three guys, and tells them that they're getting out of there. As Jill speeds away, Maria and Jen apologize for hooking up with the guys. She says, "I'm not talking about that. I should have never come here. This town... it's a graveyard." Back at the bar, Scott beats himself up about embarrassing himself in front of Jill and proceeds to get very drunk. Kathy and her fiancé seem to have reconciled and leave happy. Laura is left cleaning up after the three dorks. Laura sees Scott half-passed out on the bar, and Kyle says he'll take him home, and then he and Laura can leave. She's not in the mood. Kyle explains why he he is. The kids are moms, and why not take advantage of that? She replies, by climbing on top of you for five minutes? Why, that sounds oh-so-heavenly. Kyle says, Hey, you and I both know what five minutes can do. She goes to slap him. He grabs her wrist and about to hit her when Scott interrupts and tells Kyle to leave her alone. Kyle threatens Scott and Scott doesn't back down, but no punches are thrown because Kyle says Scott is pathetic and not worth his time, and he leaves. Scott then sits back down and passes out. Laura goes back to work, and a moment later hears a familiar voice. It's Jeffrey, who says that he'll take her away from all of it and says that he loves her. She says that she will go away with him. Alas, it's her imagination. She lights a cigarette and takes a drink before helping Scott to his feet. She gets into her car and tells him that she's taking him home. He thanks her and says it's no big deal because he doesn't live very far away from her and she adds that he's a nice guy and deserves to be treated nicely. He thanks her and she kisses him on the cheek and says, You're welcome, sweetie. He blushes and glances at her. They stand gazing at one another and we zoom out I guess if you're one of those people who wants a bullet pointed rundown of what happened to each and every character you're going to be disappointed in the epilogue when you go back home and run into people you don't always run into everybody and don't necessarily get the whole story so the fact that McKeever gives us only glances at people is realistic once again Scott's a bit pathetic and that's definitely what Jill sees when she goes to the t-shirt shop with him and he hits on her Her exclamation that this town is a graveyard is so apropos that it basically sums up everything about Northern Plains in one sentence. That Laura and Kyle are together and that the relationship is tumultuous is not surprising. And out of all the characters in the epilogue, she's the one I feel for the most because she's basically becoming the female version of Scott, wasting away in a dead-end job in a dead-end town, pining for someone she gave up years ago. Jill's a bit obnoxious at first, but who isn't on their 21st birthday, and well... Everything in this scene just works. It's natural. It's well-paced. It fits in with everything else in the series. Mike Norton's back on the art, this time giving everything a little more depth. But he certainly is able to make those characters look older, and since it's been a few years since we last saw all of them. If anything, this sets up would be a great premise for stories involving these characters. McKeever and Norton can come back every so often to show them as they grow up and grow older. I'm not sure be cost effective to continually publish trades. I don't know, maybe doing something digital. I mean, I honestly want to know what happened after this, even though I do still feel very satisfied by the ending. So overall, damn it, I wish I'd written this. No, really. This is just such an example of why the comics medium is so great. I suppose had this been developed for television, it might have been the brilliant but cancelled type of TV show, like Your My So Called Life or Your Freaks and Geeks. Here, McKeever though has the opportunity to tell his whole story when the other limitations of television, such as casting and location costs, are not there either. The characters feel well rounded and real, and the setting of this small town where nobody ever seems to leave is also very real. I feel like I know each one of these people and the town where they live. I guess you really can't ask for much more than that. Thanks for coming along with me. I recommend picking up The Waiting Place for yourself because it's really worth the read. I'm taking about a month off from here. Um, I'm I'm in the middle of moving, uh, packing things up. In fact, I'm sitting in my office right now and there's just boxes everywhere. So I won't be recording another or releasing another episode at least until June 25th, which is when episode 50 will come out. And then shortly after that, probably the next episode of my 80 Years of DC Comics series will come out. Episode 50, well, it is going to be a special one. Will I be covering? Well, you'll have to tune in in about a month to find that out. So until then, thanks for listening, and take
4: care.
0: You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash affidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the De of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks Podcasts? Go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.
4: Greg, he writes letters with his birthday pen. Sometimes he's aware that they're drawing him lucy was pretty your best friend agreed well still pretty good yeah